Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of December 2021 and this is episode 235. This is the last podcast of this year as we break for our customary vacation over the festive break. I wish you many happy returns for the festive period and look forward to seeing you in the new year. We resume normal service on the 3rd of January 2021 when I talk to Richard Hendry about his research into the 47th Division at High Wood during the Battle of the Somme in September 16. Returning to today's podcast, I talk to independent writer and researcher Dr Barry Blades about his recent research into schools, teachers and the Great War. His first book is Role of Honour, Schooling and the Great War, 1914 to 1990. This looks at how children and teachers in British schools were affected by the First World War and how in turn they supported the national war effort. His second book, Teachers at the Front, 1914 to 1919, develops the story further and looks at teacher soldiers from British and Dominion teacher training colleges who fought and died during the Great War. Both books are published by Pen and Sword. Barry, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and how you became interested in schools, teachers and the Great War? Thank you, Tom. Delighted to be able to help with the uh, Western Front Association uh, Dispatches podcast. Um, I suppose like many people, my interest in the Great War uh, came from a family connection. I'm of that generation where grandparents could still talk about their experience in the war and uh, when I was aged about 10, my grandfather, Richard Blades, who had been a boy soldier, I later found out in the Great War, handed me the, the classic toffee tin full of medals. Uh, not only his, but those of my great uncle, Horace Groom, who had served and in fact had died in the war. And it was that that really prompted, I suppose, my interest not just in history, but the Great War in particular. Um, And despite the fact that I never got the opportunity to study the Great War at school, it was something that I carried through with me to university and then on to becoming a teacher. So uh, having got my history degree from London University, I then proceeded um, to become a teacher at Goldsmiths College and then taught at schools in London and also in Peterborough for best part of, well, in fact, just over 30 years. I think just about every pupil I taught during that time got to hear about my uncle Horace um, and uh, his death a month before the war. As far as schooling was concerned, that was slightly different. I was um, a serving teacher um, right the way through from the 19, early 1970s um, up until about 2006. Um, In 1993, we had a sort of change of regime in the school. And remarkably, part of that change resulted in the discovery of a lost archive of material um, relating to the school's history. We'd actually had a a very reforming, very progressive head teacher at the time who believed that everything should be done over the internet or information technology. And that 
books really were no longer required. And at one point, many books went into the skip, including the school's governor's minutes, their admissions registers, and even things like the school photographs. We were in the process of rebranding, as it was called at the time. Um, the change of regime, though, eventually meant that I, was, I ended up as the acting head at the school and the caretaker came to me one day and said, you're very interested in the history of the school, aren't you? Yes. Come and see what I have. And he'd actually taken all this material out of the skip um, and uh, kept it in, in the, uh, the janitor's warehouse, I suppose, his, his working office. And there was this incredible of the school's history. And I used that for, a, for doctoral research, looking at uh, the type of school it was in the period before the First World War. And one of the things when I opened it up that really struck me, I looked at the admissions registers and saw this whole group of young men who had been born in the 1890s and attended school just before the war. And of course, it talked about their the social origins. Um, most of them were working class or lower middle class. Many were fee payers. Others were scholarship boys because the uh, scholarship ladder had been introduced for them, whereby they could get a scholarship to a secondary school for a brief period. But one stuck in my mind. I remember seeing the record for Albert Herbert, a young lad who did well at school. He was a scholarship boy. He did, as so many of those boys did at the time, become a teacher, first a pupil teacher, and then a, a full-time teacher in an elementary school in Peterborough. Um, it uh, made, had a few notes in this double-page admissions register about his career, but it was the remarks section which really had an impact on it. It simply said, killed in Flanders, brackets, loose, 1950. And it was that that started me on the, if you like, the research trail to find out more about not just boys like Albert Herbert or young men as they had been by that time, but the school itself. And there was a huge gap. As I looked for more material, there was a huge gap on schools of that kind. Um, there was plenty in the monographs of the, the elite public schools, um, both of their, their pupils, their alumni mainly, and the, you know, the tragic loss of life that many of those schools encountered during the war, and also some of their teachers. But I could find virtually nothing more. There was certainly no standard text or even monographs on many of the other schools. So, to cut a long story short, I decided to write it myself. Um, this has been a, a work in progress for the best part of, what, two, three decades now. Um, and the first book, Role of Honour, was the outcome of that research. I think you've touched on this already, but why do you think researching this area is important? I think what I was particularly interested in was that so much of what I read seemed uh, you know, tragic, but relatively thin stories. So the stories, even of uh, the famous alumni of uh, some of the public schools, tended to be, I don't know, I suppose I, I read so many of them, they, they appeared to me lacking sometimes, albeit there are exceptions to this, of course, um, lacking that more holistic cradle, literally to grave uh, story. Um, I wanted to do something that took young men and young women who became teachers during the war, another topic we'll cover later. I wanted to look at their life story, whereby their schooling, their military career, career were all part of a much bigger life story. 
was also interested that the faces that we'd seen from, particularly from the elite schools, didn't represent the majority of people or the majority of schools. And we've, we've heard others talk about the myriad faces of war. Well, I wanted to develop that and make it more nuanced, not just the different people, the different, the myriad faces from what was normally, um, I felt, being represented, but also the myriad faces that each of us wear, the different hats we wear as, as, you know, as son or daughter, as brother or sister, as father and child and so on, right through to teacher and teacher as soldier. So I didn't feel that any of this was anywhere in the literature that I was aware of, and I may be totally wrong. There may be lots of people doing similar work. And of course, there is similar work on, on doctors and so on in the First World War. I also wanted to challenge not just some of the stereotypes, but some of the myths, because what I found in my, certainly in my doctoral research into Deacon School, is that becoming a secondary school made a big change. It had been a charity school, but becoming a secondary school and also a school that would take up to 25% of, of scholarship boys, non-fee-paying boys, did change the demographic. And I was interested to see that these were, by definition, very bright young boys. There are, there are girls' schools with similar histories. Yet they didn't seem necessarily to go on in, in the way that many of the fee payers were. And I have to say, my research suggests that many of the fee payers weren't as bright as the scholarship boys, um, but they didn't have, and uh, you know, we, we hear about social mobility today, they didn't seem to have that same extended ladder. It was a ladder from their elementary school to a secondary school, but very, very few of them went on to university. Consequently, Many of them did not have perhaps the, um, the academic, uh, the social capital or the military capital that many other young men had by going into public school cadet corps or officer training corps of the universities. So it was really looking at some of these stories of these young. And it does sound very grand, but we all remember perhaps E.P. Thompson talking about, you know, rescuing other sorts of history from the enormous condescension of posterity. I just thought these, these were stories worth telling with an underlying social mobility message. Um, while I was doing my research, the, uh, it was a case study of Deacon School, which was to some extent um, a little bit close to home because I worked at the school. I, by then I was the acting head teacher, which is why the caretaker finally brought this material to me. Um, and I was proud of the school in which I was working. But I did think that these stories were worth telling. It was worth showing, in fact, as I nearly subtitled the thesis, how on earth did we win the first war? I know that in, in itself has been a, a debatable point, uh, but how did we win it when so much talent didn't actually make it through to the higher ranks, the, the officer ranks? I should say, though, that my research later showed it did actually blow one or two, I think, blow one or two of the myths of the officer class in the First World War. So the, the notion that, for example, all officers in the Great War were the product of the public schools um, and that all, of, all public school boys went on to become officers, they're patently not true from much of the other evidence. It was certainly the case in 1914, but because of the way the army recruited and commissioned its um, officer class, 
the vast majority who were qualified through their core um, certificate A and so on came from the public schools. We know that by 1916, that the attrition rate amongst young officers was so high that um, I think uh, um, it's been said that the, uh, the war office had to go beyond the usual gene pool. Well, my understanding from my research is that by the end of the war, most of the officer class had not been to that in fact, the majority had been to the other schools, which we'll talk about in a moment. And also that, uh, again, a minority here, though I must add, minority of public school boys chose not to become officers because they would rather, so it is said, um, they would rather be a member of some of the more elite regiments, the public schools battalion, well, many of them were later shipped off to be officers, but they joined those rather than officers in the so-called county or unfashionable regiment. Now, again, I may be actually setting up some more myths here and stereotypes, but that is what my evidence did actually show. So before we get into the detail, could we look at a broad overview of the nature and extent of the Edwardian education system and the different types of school that existed in Britain and Ireland before the outbreak of war? I think my, my emphasis on the, the public schools, um, the private schools, as perhaps we should call them, the fee-paying schools, is because so much of the, the literature from the First World War era about schooling emanates from that sector. However, if we think of schooling as a pyramid um, with the, the public schools at the very, very top, the very pinnacle, the apex of that pyramid, they were indeed a minority for the vast majority of the population. Schooling was class-based. It was in fee-based, in fact, all the way through. Um, fees were used, or payment for schooling was used, to actually regulate admissions. And schools quite clearly set out their stall to attract particular types of clientele. The vast majority, of course, couldn't do that because they were the elementary schools for the masses. And by the time we're looking at the pre, the early part of the 20th century, pre-First World War, um, elementary schools were compulsory and technically free for all. The vast majority of children went to those schools and the vast majority of their teachers were drawn from the same social class. Uh, more the population, as we know, in, um, in 19th century Britain had absolutely exploded more people meant more schools, well, more children first, more schools, and the need for more teachers. After 1902, though, there is some regulation of what's called secondary education. Now, in the pre-war period, the vast majority of children went to the elementary schools, and that was it. There was no progression there as there is today from, we would call it primary schooling, naturally moving on to secondary schooling and increasingly, uh, I think we're up to about 50% now, going on to tertiary or higher education. So elementary schooling was actually a schooling in its own right. The majority were taught the three R's plus a heavy dose of reading, writing and arithmetic or reckoning as I think it originally was. Um, they were taught that and a heavy dose of religion in virtually all the schools, whether the Church of England or non-conformist non schools, um, and also a heavy dose of discipline and nationalism within those schools. 
for a fortunate few, there was then progression to the secondary school. That would be for those who could afford to continue their teaching by paying fees, again, regulated to ensure that it was it was the relative poor. It was certainly were not necessarily, perhaps we should say the respectable poor in some cases. But there was a scholarship system introduced whereby a ladder, um, if you like, a ladder of mobility allowed a few to enter those schools. Many of those secondary schools, in fact, some of the secondary school definitions originally said middle-class school. That's who they were intended for, um, almost as a, if you like, a buffer, uh, or I use a military analogy, a no-man's land between the elementary schools and the elite schools. But they attracted fee payers. There would be some form of examination, entry um, uh, qualification. They would have to pass certain tests. But it was the ability to pay rather than the individual child's ability that secured access for the vast majority. However, up to 25% of places could be taken by schools um, for scholarship pupils. And some schools, because that was funded by the government, saw that as a very, very useful way of surviving. Um, the the so-called middle-class schools had to depend on fees, but with support from the government, they were able to, if you like, at least have some sort of safety. It did incur, by the way, any form of uh, uh, financing from the government. It would incur the dreaded HMI inspection, the equivalent of Ofsted today. My, perhaps if I can just say a little bit more about that, is that, again, the, the evidence shows that those very bright students, the scholarship students, didn't then necessarily take more steps on the ladder as was intended. Certainly the, um, the London board schools intended that the ladder should go all the way to university. It was one of their, their great hopes that this really would be about harnessing talent beyond the usual social classes. My evidence from my doctoral research shows that scholarship pupils found it very difficult to go beyond their initial scholarship, that three years was the norm. Fee payers may well have stayed on further. It was related to occupational opportunities. And certainly in Peterborough, where my research was based, there were plenty of new engineering companies would give these bright boys um, apprenticeships. They would give them technical skills. And their three-year scholarship was really a passport into that. Interestingly, when I looked at where they were 20 or 30 years on, a lot of these young lads had actually made it into managerial position, says something about their ability. Um, many others chose to become clerks in solicitors' offices and so on. In other words, white-collar jobs. And some did manage to go to university, but they were the exception. They were really unusual. In fact, I think I only found one lad from the 900 um, students or pupils I had in the admissions register who made it all the way through to Cambridge. He was Albert Worcester. He was the son of um, a fireman on the railway, a stoker on the railway, and he'd managed to go all the way through. I think the school had recognised in that case that he was so bright and they gave him a series of scholarships or bursaries, as they called them at the time, to allow him to stay on. But he was exceptional. So what was the scale of enlistment by teachers in the armed services during the Great War? I think in many ways we we could say it was very similar to the general picture at the time. 
Um, although what I have done in the, in the first book is um, Role of Honour, um, which deals with British teachers, and it deals with teachers from all types of school. It shows that there was quite a spectrum, first of all. I'll give you some idea of numbers in a moment, but if you can imagine a spectrum from red-hot nationalism down to, across to conscientious objection, you could place teachers all the way across that. There were some who, particularly head teachers, head teachers enlisted as well, who were fervent nationalists, believed that it was Britain's imperial destiny to continue to maintain its position in Europe, particularly against the threats from Germany. There were others who uh, didn't so much enlist in 1914 as um, rejoin their regiments. Um, this was a period in which, uh, I mean, we've heard of the, the, the phrase a nation in arms. I mean, being a part-time member of the military, whether it was in the, the militia, the special reserve, being a, 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 a teacher in a school that had a cadet corps where teachers would become officers, um, or in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, as is the case in a few that I found, they had to report for duty. Um, many of the young trainees that I covered in my second book were members of the London University Officer Training Corps. They were on camp at Legisall when the war broke out in 1914 and immediately gave up their studies, or rather didn't return to them because it was a summer holiday, and off they went, joined regiments and began their training. I think there were also other teachers who perhaps didn't have that background, but like the civilian population generally, were caught up in that initial war fever of 1914, tempered, of course, by news of casualty later. Other teachers waited to be conscripted. Um, what their views were, I guess, like every other military age uh, young man in the country, they had to make those personal and considered decisions. And I think that's what I've tried to do with my, my stories, my biographies, is actually say, look, these think of, think of teachers today we're all so different. We, when one talks about a teacher, and I think there are about a half a million of us in, in Britain today, we are also different. We are individuals. We respond to events in different ways. Yes, there'll be certain common characteristics, but generally, is it the right time for me? Is it a good time in my career? What will the effect be on my family and so on? So it's more nuanced than we tend to see in many accounts from this. I should say also, though, that I've, I have found and found one or two very, very famous at the time examples of teachers who said, as perhaps many would do today, this war is wrong. Well, it may have been on religious reasons. We shouldn't be fighting. We should not be taking on. For others, it was a mixture of that, but it was also a political stance, a considered, perhaps what today we would call left-wing um, ideology that said we won't join and we won't encourage anyone else to join. good example of that was James Maxton he was a scholarship boy in Scotland uh, went to the academy there Glasgow did as so many of these bright young boys did saw teaching as a career route and remember for many working class lads being a teacher was something special being a teacher meant white collar not blue his first school was in the East End of, of Glasgow. He walked into his first lesson, looked at the children there, and he said later in his memoirs, on that day I became a socialist. When the war began, he um, refused 
to enlist. There was pressure from governors. The school governors decided that they would terminate his contract. The Glasgow School Board also effectively banned him from teaching anywhere in their schools. Eventually, uh, I mean, after the war, again, he couldn't uh, return to teaching. It really was persona non grata. Um, uh, he turned to politics. He became the MP for Bridgeton in Glasgow, representing the area where he taught. Um, he later became chairman of the independent Labour Party. Winston Churchill said he was the greatest parliamentarian of his age. So there we have someone who really did decide as a teacher that war was not something to be considered. That was unusual because in most schools, head teachers exhorted pupils to join. So did governors. Governors, there was an expectation amongst many governors that their staff would represent the school and the community. And, and many of those governors, for example, in Peterborough, um, one of the governors at Deacon School, Alderman Isaac Whitsett, actually had, uh, set up his, his own um, equivalent of a POWs battalion. It was called Whitsett's Light Infantry. And he was also a governor at Deacon School. So there were expectations that the pupils and former staff uh, sorry, staff and former pupils would join. There was also, of course, the expectation from the press. Teachers were expected to be role models, and the local press could be very, very harsh if they found that there were teachers not in uniform, not in the armed forces. In, in Glamorgan, for example, a local press report referred to one school where they still had, I think it was three teachers who hadn't joined, had stayed in school, for whatever reason, they called it, they referred to the school as Coward's Castle. Um, even the juvenile literature of the time, the Magnet um, news, comic, I suppose, newspaper, ran a line which was all about the master who wouldn't go to war. So if, if schools were, were encouraging their staff to join up, what was the impact of those staff joining up on the institutions uh, that may have encouraged them? Well, it's, it's ironic, really, isn't it? Because so many of the schools had encouraged the teachers to enlist. <clears throat> and then almost immediately, and there, there was a huge um, level of, of enlistment at that time by teachers. Some schools are virtually empty, particularly the boys' school. Um, and many of these secondary schools in particular, where it was a boys' school with a male head teacher, male teachers, many of the teachers disappeared in those early months of the war. Um, the same, in the, in the elementary schools, not to the same extent, in that many obviously were mixed schools, the majority were mixed schools, and they had mixed teaching staff. So often there were women in the schools teaching younger boys and girls together. In some of the schools, so that um, staffing uh, exodus created a major staffing problem. Head teachers, um, again, some had already themselves enlisted, but those who were perhaps too old for military service, they then began searching and desperately searching for people to stand in for the absent masters. Um, one group that were called upon were, were actually at the time called dugouts, a term that was referred to some of the, the pre-war officers who, with war being declared, were called back into the army. Well, dugouts were probably teachers like me who'd retired and they had some difficulty coming back and making adjustments, but they were one source of a new staffing body. Senior boys were also, and again, this tended to be an issue in the boys' school, predominantly senior boys, the prefects, were often used to teach classes. Classes were doubled up 
But of course, the major recruitment pool was women. Um, and there were many women, including married women, who had, because of getting married, had to give up their career. That was how it worked in 1914. Um, many of those women were then invited back into the schools. And there's, a, there's an interesting um, dimension to this in terms of how the women were received, in, particularly in the boys' schools. The, the men who'd gone off, the teachers who'd gone off to war, were temporary soldiers. Those who'd become officers were temporary officers. Because they were officers, they also had to be temporary gentlemen, but only for the duration of the war. The women teachers were also temporary teachers, and their contracts literally were for the duration of the war only. But how did they relate to the school? Well, I have several examples where schools, to ensure that the boys, as part of it, ensure that the boys respected the women, the new teachers, they were referred to as temporary masters for the duration of the war only. I've got one example from, or two examples from Deacon School, where Elsa Tutin, who'd been to the London Day Training College, um, had just graduated and got a job because of the war in Deacon School, um, teaching mathematics in the absence of a maths teacher who'd actually gone off to fight in the Northamptonshire Regiment. At the end of the war, the maths teacher returned. Elsa Tutin lost her job. However, Gladys Pringer, these are lovely names from the time, um, who'd also been appointed during the war, was retained despite the temporary nature of the appointment. And that's because the school was expanding. Many of these schools expanded. They were missing some of their teachers who'd become casualties, needed good staff, and women staff who clearly had cut the mustard in the school were retained. I was just wondering how the teaching unions responded to this. One of the, um, I, I managed to get quite a, a large list of teachers. I, I think, and the unions were vital in this, I think there in Britain, though, I got the names of at least 20,000 teachers. Most of those have come from my own, well, no, not most, many of them have come from research, where I've gone through whatever evidence does exist from the record offices or from school um, monograph histories of the war, and I've listed them. But one of the most useful things I found is the National Union of Teachers, the NUT's um, Roll of Honour, their war list. The NUT had no difficulty with the war, even though some teachers were against it. Um, and at the end of the war, they, like so many other institutions, produced a list, a roll of honour, as did many schools, obviously, universities, businesses. They produced their own roll of honour. And it has every single member of the NUT in their own areas. So the, the NUT branches, for example, in Peterborough, are matched by those in the various branches in London. I think there are about 15 or 20, and the level of subscription was absolutely huge. That alone, I think, is, has got thousands. Of, it is available now. There is a, a DVD, no, sorry, not a DVD, a CD-ROM with all of that material on there, and it gives a history of the NUT's contribution, not just in terms of manpower, but in terms of supporting the war. Now, what it doesn't show, or alludes to it, is that clearly within any organisation, there would have been tensions and there would have been people who were not 
from the NUT, sorry, within the NUT, who were not prepared to enlist or support the war. So let's turn to the theme of your second book that explores the role, experience and contribution as, of teachers as combatants. Obviously, there are many teachers serving in the ranks of the armed forces. How did you choose the individuals and schools that you focused in for your study? Well, as with so many pieces of research, what I started was not necessarily what came out in the book, because the original idea was that I would simply take more case studies to add to those I'd already included in Role of Honour. Role of Honour has got two chapters in there. One is called Patriots, which looks at um, that spectrum of teachers and gives some very detailed case studies. Maxton is an example of one extreme. I intended to do something similar to that, and particularly along the lines of the other chapter, which was called Temporary Gentlemen and Other Ranks, and look at, again, the, the, the social, the career, um, and uh, the military experience of teachers in relation to whether they became officers or NCOs or stayed as other ranks, which some of them clearly did do. Um, and that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a book of perhaps another 20 case studies. And I could have easily populated that book. There were enough, and bearing in mind this is book, my books are supposed to be readable, but based on fairly intensive research. I wanted to have some stories which said, here's what I said in book one. Here are more examples to reinforce or challenge that theme. No, they weren't all going on bright young things from the elementary schools to become officers. And then it changed because I had a chance encounter in Australia where in, on holiday in a library, I found a book entitled Western Australian Teachers in the Great War. That's the first book I found that suggested that someone else was covering teacher soldiers. I've not found anything, certainly nothing tangible. It was written by Neville Green. It was a case study of teacher soldiers from a college that he himself had um, taught at later on, and it was Claremont Teachers College in Perth. Neville showed in, in, in his research, and it was a very simple, uh, almost uh, an almanac, if you like, of the college itself during the war, but also a list of those soldiers who died predominantly in the war. And I was amazed by it. I found just by flicking through these brief cameos, I found 11 men from the, I think he got about 80 in there, 11 men who were Australian royalty. They were Anzacs. Not only were they Anzacs, because there were plenty more of them, but they had landed on Anzac Beach on day one, 25th of April, 1950. There were three in particular, the three sprinters, they were called, who'd been to the college. Uh, all of them had uh, were second generation Australians. Their families had uh, migrated during the great boom in Australia in the 1880s and 90s. They were Australian citizens, but they saw themselves very much as English, even though some of them were quite clearly of Scots origin or German origin. They were going back to fight for the old country. One of them, Sid Forbes, actually landed in the, I believe he landed in the first craft to hit the beach. He was also amongst the first, the only group of 32 that managed to extend beyond what Anzac Beach became and look across and see the straits where the British Navy was on it, trying unsuccessfully to navigate and to reach Constantinople. 
this these stories made me realize that there was another parallel story about dominion teachers um they the, the dominion model of teacher training and of teaching very much had been copied from the British model. Many of the teachers had originally, until they, they grew their own, so to speak, like Sidney Forbes, many of their teachers had come over from England. It was what is often called the diffusion model. We often hear that where the, if you like, the, the ethos, the regime, the culture of the elite public schools diffused to the secondary schools, the middle-class scholarship schools in this country. But here were clearly, particularly teacher training that worked very much on the British model. I actually met Neville um, uh, a year later, managed to track him down, he'd retired, and he gave me his archive. So I then had not only the archive I worked on at the London Day Training College or Institute of Education at UCL in London today, but I now had this parallel Dominion archive. I realised that the, the, the comparison would probably be a little bit too too thin. So I thought, well, if they've got this in Australia, how about New Zealand? I very quickly found that Auckland Training College had put most of their records online, and in Canada, in Toronto, uh, the University of Toronto's Faculty of Education also had an archive of all of those who'd gone forth. So again, more teacher soldiers from three dominions and the, the homeland. In terms of, of the other question about how I chose this, I could again have written and still could write similar books to teachers at the front, just taking another dozen examples. I had a database of 600 men and women, although their women are covered in far more detail in the first book, 600 men from the London Day Training College who'd fought in the war. And then another 200, roughly, from each of those three Dominion training colleges. It meant that I could build narratives based around their enlistment and training, their deployment, but also their connections. So the 12, and there are they're essentially, there are from each of those three countries and three colleges, there are three men. Two, I don't know whether I should do a spoiler here, two who were killed, were part of the fallen, and from each college, one who is an exemplar survivor. The book inevitably meant I was looking for exceptional men, either exceptional in their own lifetime or exceptional at war, but not necessarily both. And I was looking to see whether I could link them. Were there men who were following other ones, other of my men, onto the same battlefield? And yes, some of them did. The week after, they took over the positions that other men in my book had just taken from the Germans and the Battle of the Somme, for example, a Pozier, before they then went on as Canadians to attack at Corsair. There are others who died within yards of each other in the Battle of Flair Corsair in 1916. In one case, a man actually there to support apart from the Dominions, only 100 yards away. So I ended up with some exceptional men who, some of whom were totally unknown in during their lifetimes, and some who are relatively unknown, despite doing quite amazing things in their own countries today. So it was, you, you name it, it was Pearl 12 from a 1,000. Which, which leads me conveniently onto my next question. Tell me some of their stories. <laughs> right. 
Right, I'll, I'll stick with two if that's all right. And it's actually the two I just referred to who um, um, were serving within, literally within yards, meters of each. The first one is from London Day Training College. His name is Albert Baswitz. He was the son of Jewish German migrants. His grandparents, his maternal grandparents, had uh, settled in, in Bradford in the 19th century as part of the um, the textile trade. His, his grandfather, Monius Gottheil, uh, became a leading figure in, the, in, in Bradford. He was a fent or stuff dealer, which effectively meant remnant materials. But he made a, quite a, a decent living out of it. The paternal side of the family were more recent migrants. Herman Baswitz was a clerk for the Baden Marine Insurance Company. Again, he'd come over. We don't, I can't find out why they came, other than for economic reasons. Um, it may have been, as it was the case with so many Jewish people at that time in the late 19th century, due to discrimination. But these were German rather than far, if you like, East European, Polish or Russian migrants. Um, but um, so Albert, uh, uh, born in Bradford, moved to London with his, his father, Herman. Um, I would describe them as, okay, it's, these are rough and ready demarcations, but as, if you like, um, upper working class, lower, respectable, but certainly not after, certainly not in a position to afford anything more than an elementary education and pay school fees. They actually moved, first of all, they, they lived in the East End where so many of the German refugees, uh, sorry, the Jewish refugees had, had settled in the pre-war period, but had fairly quickly, as, as many of the uh, German um, uh, Jewish origin people had, they moved to Westland. And by the time of Albert attending school, he was in Fulham, living in Fulham. It's called North End Road. There's a wonderful book that describes the sights, the smells, the sounds that he would have experienced. And I've tried to put some of that uh, character into the book, that atmosphere into the book. He attended a, a, an elementary school, a London board school, but then, like so many of these young men, got a scholarship. The scholarship was to Latimer Upper School. At the time on that sort of border between the new secondary schools and the elite public schools, members of the headmaster's conference. There's very little in the school archive. This was not by any means an exceptional young man. He wasn't the brilliant young thing that we, who garnered all the glittering prizes. One of his friends or several of his friends were who'd also won scholarships. He was not really into sport. Um, again, one of his friends certainly was a chap called Ben Bateman who was playing football for England at the time. Um, but he was one of those majority of worthy young students at school. He did, though, gain a bursary to become a pupil teacher at the school. And that led on to another scholarship to the London Day Training College. And that's really where his mobility, he, he, he did manage to access some of these steps on the left. Because going to London Day Training College, and by the way, he chose that, even though it wasn't the nearest college, because his school, Latimer Upper School, were noted as, as specialists in maths and science, that was his forte. And at the London Day Training College was Professor Percy. He was the great teacher, the university college lecturer for mathematics of his age. He later became Sir Percy Nunn, and was basically the mainstay of 
the Institute of Education in London much later on. It was said that Percy Nunn could teach calculus to a class of whelks. Albert proceeded to the the college, did reasonably well, did his three years there. He started in 1911. Um, By 1914, he was due to do another year, but of course the war intervened. And uh, instead, he terminated his studies. Percy Nunn kept meticulous records of this. And that's where much of my research came from. I mean, he, he kept a double page on all of these men and followed their military careers with it. Interestingly, Albert became a commissioned officer in the 22nd London not one of the fashionable regiments at the time. So again, his access was limited. But the reason he became an officer is by dint of not having been to the right school, Latimer was on that the borderland, if you like, between the the school for the masses and the schools for the rich. Um, but going to London Day Training College, which was part sponsored by University of London, meant that he had to attend his maths and science lessons at one of the university colleges. He went to King's College, as did many of his uh, counterparts. There were 11 young men from Latin that year, all with similar backgrounds, omnibus drivers, butchers, and so on, post men as they would have been at that time. But they suddenly, they find that by becoming a teacher, they not only got a teaching qualification, but also a degree, a degree from the university. That in itself would not necessarily be enough for him to become an officer, but going to the university and King's College then gave him access to another key institution in his military career. And as I think I mentioned earlier, he and his fellow friends joined the University of London Officer Training Corps. They had the necessary qualifications. Ben Bateman, the one I mentioned, who was a prize student there, was too busy playing football. He didn't go to the University of London Officer Training Corps. Um, in, consequently, when war was declared, he did enlist, but as one of the other ranks, he was privately. I should say he survived the war. The others didn't. Now, I've given the game away a little bit with Albert. Just to say what his career was, he joined the uh, Londons. He was with the 47th um, London Division. They were one of the first territorial divisions to land in France, and they were heavily involved in the area around uh, Lawns and uh, Bethune and the mining district in, uh, in, in Flanders region. He made a reputation for himself as a bombing officer. He was, in fact, the the school received a letter later saying that this young man, by then a captain, he'd been promoted, was an expert in raids and bombing. And there was a letter saying that he had actually crept across, several times crept across no man's land at night, as the bombers were expected to do, uh, being offensive on their raids, and got within um, earshot of the German lines. And of course, being a good German speaker, in fact, I think German was the language at home, he could hear what they were saying. There are also more um, dubious stories, although I have found some basis for them, where where it claimed that this young fair-haired officer actually went into the German lines, dressed as a German officer, speaking perfect German, and asking the the startled uh, um, German uh, other ranks to give him a guided tour of the the trenches. And then somehow he slipped out, took the information back prior to the bombardment. I think some of those 
written after his death may well have been. What I did find is that at various points, he, um, particularly during the Battle of Luce, or just after the Battle of Luce, was holed up in a trench under bombardment from both sides uh, at Hill 70, a place later taken, captured by one of the Canadians. After the, after the Battle of Luce, where the 22nd Londons had been involved, they were then sent eventually down to Tavimi, the Vimy Ridge area, and then on to the Somme. This was the third major step in the Somme. They were there on the 15th of September, facing home. And the, my book, Teaching the Front, deals in some detail with how Albert got there via the great marshalling point of the, the town of Albert, past the Hanging Virgin on the cathedral within the town, and then along the roads, the Rue Saint-Anne, the great highway of war up to Basentown Ridge, where the, the British forces with their Dominion supporters had managed to push. In fact, they were they were opposite Highwood, and Highwood was one of those targets. Like back home, even further on, even you know beyond, they'd been Haig's targets, objectives for day one on July the first. So there they were on the fifteenth of September. Um, they there were New Zealanders with them. There were Canadians with them. No Australians on that, but they'd been employed three weeks earlier actually taking Pozier and securing the left flank for the attack on Corselet during that battle. Um, Albert was in the 142nd Brigade and in a reserve capacity on the first day of the Battle of Highwood or Flair Corselet, as it's more generally known. He spent the day with his men taking supplies of ammunition and other materials up to the front line where the London Division was heavily involved and heavily um, damaged by their frontal assault on the German positions in the wood. Many of the London battalions, for example, the civil service, the post office rifles, they were decimated by what happened that day. Um, but gradually pushed further forward, the wood was cleared, and it was the following day that Albert went into frontline action. There was a composite group of, from different battalions from the 142 Brigade, and their job that day was to go on the eastern flank of Highwood, head towards, in the distance, the village of Flair, and in that midpoint, in fact, it's where the New Zealand monument stands today, roughly on that point, he reached the area about 100 yards away from where the New, Zealand, New Zealanders were dug in. There were some reports of he and his men travelling beyond that, but Royal Flying Corps um, observer had noted that there were what seemed to be British troops. They could only have been them probably on that day, um, almost as far as Flares itself. That was not the case. None of his men returned. He was killed in action very, very close to the New Zealand lines and was eventually then uh, taken his body taken from the battlefield taken back down the the highway of war virtually the same uh, route that he, he'd taken on his way there suddenly the mountain, and bar buried in flat iron cops seven the other man i want to talk about them was there at the time he was one of the men who was being relieved his name was frank wilson and he was in the auckland 
Battalion of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Now, unlike Albert, Frank actually was pretty well known in his own time. He had uh, been born in, in New Zealand, um, unlike most of his siblings, and I think he was the youngest boy in a family of 10. His parents had emigrated from County Clare in Ireland and had gone to New Zealand again, mainly for the opportunities there were there for, for farming, making a new life in, in an agricultural setting. They found their way, though, to Auckland and to the suburb of Ponsonby, and his father was actually a carpenter. So it seems he'd gone there to support, if you like, the infrastructure decks that the growth of Auckland and the surrounding region of necessity. Frank again, bright boy, don't know much about him from his primary school, but he certainly went to school in Ponsonby, may well have been at Newton West School where he later taught. Again, a scholarship boy, this time to Auckland Grammar School, a grammar school based on British public school lines and still is today. It's, it is arguably the, the foremost school in Auckland. I think the, their neighbour King's College would probably argue that today. Frank is still remembered at Auckland Grammar School, but not in the way that he was at the time. He was a he was a very uh, bright but athletic boy as well. He he received a lion that was their equivalent of a cap for playing rugby very early on. He was a a tall, athletic wing three quarters or wing I suppose we would call him today in rugby union, the game that we play in this country. Um, he represented his school and the local competitions. And when he then gained another scholarship, this time to Auckland Training College, he continued his rugby career there. Uh, he also, um, I mean, he, I think he was a man of, of many parts, although the principal at the time, who is a man called Bert Milnes, who is a, a legend in his own right still today, um, Bert Milnes, who himself was a keen athlete, said that Frank was far too wedded to sport. That's what he spent most of his time doing. But at um, Auckland Training College, he combined rugby, captain of the rugby team, with appearances in the, the various productions. He joined it in 1905. It was actually the 1905-6. It was their first cohort. And Bert Milnes, his principal, had just been appointed to the job, having been at Barrowcock in London. It was a tiny cohort of only about 20 men and women. So unlike in many of the other colleges, he had a chance to shine anyway. Um, there, were, there were so few competitors. That certainly wasn't the case at the University of Toronto, where getting into any sort of team was very difficult because it was part of a 4,000-plus university. But Frank... As I say, he, he got involved in that. He was a, uh, an excellent swimmer and competed in that. He'd broken the school and the college running records, sprinting records, strangely over 150 metres in those days. Um, he played cricket to a high level, and he continued with all of these when he left and became a teacher in West School. He, he, he was, um, his cricket team, Ponsonby cricket team, won all the cups that were going. He then played rugby for Ponsonby Rugby Football Club, where Dave Gallagher, the one of the originals, so-called original Blacks, was his great mentor. 
the originals were the first touring all-black team in England in 1906. And Gallagher was one of the one of his key mentors. He was a selector of the teams. So very briefly to tell you what his rugby career was, he played for school, for college, for university. It was attached to the university at the time. He played for Auckland. He played for North Island, which was a provisional. And he played for the All Blacks on one occasion and so badly damaged his knee that he never played again. So he's just on the All Blacks Hall of Fame. 1914, he didn't join up, unlike the vast majority of young men from the college. My, my, given that it's very, we can't go back and ask them now why, and there's no record of his motivations. Um, I think, and I, 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 and I think the evidence may support it, that there were too many important cup matches going on. Remember, at that point, they were volunteers. These were not conscripts. There were still a lot of men uh, back in New Zealand and Auckland, and there were still some cups to be. And in fact, he didn't um, enlist and, until 19, late 15, 1915. At Trenton, where so many of these men were in New Zealand, just outside Auckland, a Trenton training camp, he became by that time an NCO. He was clearly a leader of men. But um, he also captained the six reinforcements rugby team. He was sent to Gallipoli. Many of his contemporaries were already there. There were boys, ex-school friends from Auckland Grammar School, and there were certainly men there who landed at Gallipoli on day one. He was within the six reinforcements, so again, had gone the route across to Egypt and then from Lemnos across to Gallipoli and to Rhododendron Spur. He was... There, holding the New Zealand line there, when the great storms took place, and also, of course, at the time when Kitchener went across, and I think he decided it was time for evacuation. Frank was left as one of the last party to be evacuated. He was what were known at the time as the diehards. He and two other men who I deal with in the book were amongst the last of the 30 men to hold the fort as the rest of not just the New Zealanders, but the, the Australians, including some of the other men in the book, and the British Army were um, evacuated. Um, on the strength of that, and in fact, being selected for that was quite, at the time, an honour. The number of New Zealand soldiers who actually volunteered to do that far outstripped the number that were needed. And there were some who said, why Frank Wilson? He's only just arrived. But of course, Frank Wilson was every schoolboy's hero in Auckland. People knew of Frank Wilson, his famous proceeding, and he was clearly up to the mark as a soldier too. Um, again then, Frank went back to Egypt where the reorganisation was taking place post-Gallipoli. He was eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant. And on the 15th of September, as the Londoners were attacking would he, like Albert Baswitz, was in a support role. The second Aucklands had gone in to the attack first. They'd attacked from what is now Caterpillar Cemetery, where the, uh, the tanks had actually left from, and where the great uh, New Zealand burial site is today, under the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's aegis. He, like uh, uh, Albert, was deployed on day two, on the 16th, and again, I can pinpoint him exactly to where 
the Londoners arrived without replacements. Albert died on the 16th. Frank was badly wounded, severely wounded on the 17th and was taken back again down that same route. It was a six hour journey back. He would have probably passed Albert's resting place in the Rue Saint-Anne, but wounded, not dead at this point, he was taken down to Denoncourt, to the, the uh, medical aid centre there, and died on the 19th of September, and is buried there at Denoncourt Cemetery. So two very different histories, but men connected by their social origins in some respects, by their, their scholarship ladder that was made available to them, um, and by their choice of career and choice to go back to the old country and serve it in their, serve it in its hour of need. So did you find from your research that the actual training that teachers got uh, as pedagogues helped them be officers, that their sort of professional training made them effective communicators and, and uh, I suppose, disciplinarians with the men that they commanded? Um, an interesting question. I think, like any other group, I would have to say it does depend on the individual. It depends on also their career into uh, the teaching profession. Of course, it wasn't regarded by many as a profession at the time. So for many of, and I, I do have men who went to the public schools who later became teachers and teachers in, in and uh, principals of teacher training colleges who had no obvious teacher training, their qualification was that they'd been to a private public school, been to an elite school. It was therefore assumed they could teach there. And I, I guess many of them didn't, and perhaps still do, with great degrees of, of efficiency or not. I think for those who went to the teacher training colleges, they were trained to teach the masses. They were not trained necessarily. Very few of them were trained for secondary education, although Albert Baswitz's case, um, having gone to the London Day Training College and getting his degree would have qualified him for secondary education. The vast, vast majority, though, were destined for the schools for the masses and their own schooling, very often, predominantly being in those schools, their training would have mirrored it. So the emphasis was on teaching the three R's and the emphasis was also very much on discipline. They were predominantly rated certainly for the elementary schools, on their ability to hold the attention of very large groups. I mean, we're talking of classes much larger. They could have been doubled today, as many as 50 or 60 young men. And, and young, well, when I say young men, of course, the elementary schools, students left them at the age of 13 or 14. So these are relatively young. Al Baswitz teaching the older children would have had a degree, familiarity with you know, 17, 18-year-olds, some of the young conscript and so on. But they would have been taught how to discipline a group of young people. Albert Baswitz actually spent some time, because he was such a, regarded as an expert bomber, and as a teacher, he spent some time, he was seconded to the, um, the bomb school at New Les Mines, just outside uh, Luce. He spent about four or five months there and his training started by training 
bomb groups of bombardiers, if you like. So you would have your bombing group, your raiding group of men who were carrying the Mills bomb and were launching them, throwing them into the trenches, followed by the the, uh, the bayonet men who were there to mop up the survivors. So he'd been training groups of men to do that efficiently, but he also was clearly training, teaching, if you like, young officers to become bombing officers like himself. And I would have thought that was the sort of role, um, that, because my book isn't about teachers teaching soldiers in the war as such, but it alludes to it. As far as leaders of men are concerned, now my research shows that there was a fair um, split. Certainly this is in the British, um, an almost equal division between officers, commissioned officers, teacher soldiers, NCOs, and other ranks. It's it's virtually 33-ish, 30% of each. So a third of the men, and they are predominantly from those elementary school backgrounds who were teachers, did not become officers. Some by choice, some by circumstance, some because they'd been playing football, like Ben Bateman, rather than joining the OTC. Another key group were NCOs. And I think in many ways, this might have been the optimum point. I'd like to think that the war office at the time was sufficiently sophisticated to actually recognize that this was a role that many of these men could do. Can I give you just one example here? Joseph Dines was um, a, a lad in Kingsley, near, very near to where I live now. Again, he followed that same route, scholarship to a secondary school, scholarship as a pupil teacher, scholarship to Peterborough Training College. There were about 40 of these training colleges in Britain at the time. He was also, he played football with uh, Ben Bateman in the England team. Although unlike Bateman, he was in the 1912 English football team that won the Olympic gold in Stockholm in 1912. Um, This man, by the time he joined the army, because he's also a teacher at the time, he also played, by the way, for Liverpool once and... uh, for Arsenal um, and various military uh, uh, battalion teams as well. But Joseph Times, when he eventually enlisted, was enlisted as a private. He worked his way through his ranks to become Sergeant Dines and spent most of the war um, as an NCO with you know, the groups of young men, some of whom were obviously they'd be 12 years younger than him. He was in his, he was about 30 by that time. And appears to have been a very good, looking at war diaries, a good NCO. During that time, though, he applied to become a commissioned officer three times. He eventually got his commission. Um, It was actually in the machine gun corps at first. Again, not one of the fashionable units, one of the new units, which was much more open to the new men. Within weeks of his commission, he was dead. He was killed fighting on the Hindenburg line uh, just months before the end. So, again, was making him an officer the best thing? As far as the commanding officers, as far as commissioned officers, um, many of them proved to be very, very good leaders indeed. But again, I've tracked the the regiments that various uh, men were commissioned into. They tend to be the, the territorials. They tend, again, the public school teachers are the exception to this. They tend to be with the with Kitchener's new armies and again, new units. Um, some in the, the tank 
battalion, and the, which was again the machine gun and so on, or they were in the Army Service Corps, which is where Joseph Dines was for quite a long time as well. Some of them were exceptional. I mean, some of these men not only became officers, but commissioned officers, second lieutenants, but um, a great number became lieutenants, captains, and I have a few that reached the rank of major, and some who then became battalion commanders, one of which I'll perhaps talk about later with one of your other questions. For those teachers who returned to the classroom after the war, what impact did the experience of service during the war have on them as teachers and their teaching? Well, first of all, of course, not all of them returned. I mean, of my 25,000 men, and I don't have details on all of them, in some, most cases I've just named, but my 25,000 teachers, over 2,000 joined the ranks of the four. That's less than 10% as far as the British troops are concerned. So many of them did return. The Dominion figure is higher, by the way. Um, And I think that does relate to the fact that many of the men from Claremont Teachers College and Auckland Training College and the Faculty of Education in Toronto, um, it was much easier, or certainly the figures suggest that it was more likely that they would become commissioned officers that will have a, a bearing on the, the rate of those who were killed in action. And my figure for those is more like 25%. It's more than double that of the London training colleges, at least. Those who returned, well, the, the, many of the school magazines uh, report the return of young masters who have been absolutely galvanised by the war, full of zest and enthusiasm. And then there are other reports less often, but of men who have been disillusioned by them, to say the least, who've come back, as one would expect, change men, of men who are incapacitated to various degrees, uh, who suffer mood swing because of their experience. I suppose a great example of this is the, the fictional account of the young teacher, the second lieutenant in To Serve Them All My Days, who has those awful uh, sort of memories of fighting in the trenches and being under bombardment. Some of the men came back severe disciplinarians, men who hadn't been before the war. I have records of many teachers as well who, although they weren't amongst the fallen, they were actually part of a much bigger group of for, the forgotten, the men who didn't die, therefore they're, they're not on the memorials, they're not on the rolls of the fallen, because they died within a matter of two, three, four, or even ten years from their wardries. The Australian case in particular, I did follow up several there, rather than return to teaching, they were so incapacitated, they could barely function in everyday life, let alone teach, and they spent years in hospital, um, and in some cases died in them and didn't return. Um, there were men, of course, with severe disabilities. There was a chap called uh, Mr Sullivan at one of the key schools that I do in Britain, Harrow Boys School for Boys, he returned from the war uh, minus a leg. Um, He taught for a couple of years back at his school at Harrow Boys School, which was, again, one of these secondary scholarship schools. Within a couple of years, he had decided to change career and calling and became a member of the Church of England clergy but apparently still used to turn up at school in the evenings when everyone had gone home and played the piano. This this became a a sad sort of legend or uh, aftermath consequence of the great war. 
the vast majority, of course, the vast majority of these men did come back. They just got on with it. They, they replaced the teachers, most of them anyway. And I can remember, I can remember meeting teachers at uh, the school in Peterborough or at Deacon School. Um, and Dr. Bell had actually been off to war in 1919, I think. Uh, sorry, he'd returned to the school in 1919 um, or had been appointed in 1919 after having served as um, a medic at, uh, in the ambulance uh, units in the war. And he stayed there till 1955. He was one of several who came back to the school. And from what I can gather from you know, some of his students who later also became teachers, he occasionally would relate stories from me. He also used to bring in a bottle of whiskey each year for the staff at Christmas time. I don't think he realised the staff had expanded from about 14 to something like 100 by that time, but we appreciated it anyway. Um, for others, and I, I perhaps I can just give two or three examples, quick examples here, some teachers had relatively good wars. Some of them, of course, had gone off as privates or and had come back as, as senior Senior military men, um, the, one of the best examples, of, again, a tragic story that I found, and he is in book one, Role of Honour, was Archibald Buckle. He was an elementary school teacher in London, but he was also a member of the Royal Naval uh, Reserve, the RNVR, Volunteer Reserve. So he was one of these part-time sailors before the war. He was recalled to his um, unit. He was part of the Anson Battalion and was with the Anson Battalion at the relief um, of Antwerp, sorry, the Siege of Antwerp. He, as the rest of the battalion did, progressed to Gallipoli, and then eventually was back in Flanders, and rose through the ranks. By the end of the war, Archibald Buckle was Lieutenant Commander, Battalion Commander of the Anson Battalion. No one today remembers him, apart from me and now the, the Imperial, Imperial War Museum, we tend to remember the famous product of the Anson Battalion, which of course was Rupert Brooke, the archetypal brilliant young man of the time. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander Buckle won the DSO four times. This was not for leading, this was for personal bravery on the battlefield. At one point, actually, he and a small group of men basically destroying a, a German tank just as for you, Gruesome, using um, Mills Bond's grenade. Um, at the end of the war, his rank gave him progression. He, he'd left as a, a classroom teacher, a master. In those days, there were just assistants and a head teacher. And his first appointment was to the Rotherhithe Nautical School, which still exists. It was a brand new school. It had been built upon the subscriptions that had been raised after the disaster of the Titanic. He was head teacher of the school from 1919-20, I'm not sure exactly when he started, until 1927, when uh, a minor wound, a minor cut, while he was cleaning his car, uh, meant being rushed into hospital, and he died. The uh, coroner said that it was probably, probably due to the effects of gas poisoning that he'd uh, been subjected to during the war itself. There was, a, at the time, a funeral, a parade from his school, his college, his battalion, from the Bishop of London. He was buried and then forgotten. In fact, his grave was um, 
think it was in Bromley Cemetery, was only uncovered about 15 years ago. He'd been lost, one of those victims to the condescension of posterity. Final question is, where can people learn more about your research and work? And there are the two books published by Pen and Sword, um, which um, we I've talked about through that. There's, that's where most of my information is. I'm also on Twitter at WW1Schools. Barry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.